On a completely different tack, though, let's uh, let's talk about common misconceptions that we've been talking about. Last week, we uh, started looking at some Bible vocabulary words, um, arguing that yes, there's a lot of words that people that we might be reaching out to don't know, but there's also a lot of words that a lot of Christians don't know. They sometimes we 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 think we know, and if we say, "And what does that word mean?" Even Christians can go, "Ah." So like last week we talked about angel and evangelism. And apparently more than one person, and please don't feel bad about this, but apparently more than one person realized that they'd never realized that angel is smacked out in the middle of evangelism. Yeah. Uh, yeah. And so, that was awesome. Yeah. I mean, so it, there's, there's a reason why these, these words etymologically exist. Um, or or uh, even the fact that everything that we, we put in the category of angels in Scripture, Scripture doesn't necessarily automatically put all those angels into the overarching category of angels. There, there, are, are there some spiritual beings that are not what God would call an angel necessarily? We, we list like them in all one big understandable clump because we, we tend to like things in simplified clumps. Um, maybe, but not necessarily. You know, are Seraphim, Caribbean, the Malachi, are these all what God would say? Yes, these are all one big clump of things. Or you go, no, that's this, then that's this, that's this, and you guys are something else. I don't know. Um, last week we talked about evangelism. What does it mean to share the good news? You, you said it. You said it. Yeah. So, on the simplest level, what does it mean? How would you what, How would you describe <laughs> to somebody? Okay. And even that witness. What is What does witnessing mean? Most people. Most people. Don't think of witnessing as a verb other than I witnessed the accident. Uh, witness is to tell what you've seen. Seen or heard. Okay. Um, we talked about um, it being a victory message. Okay. Battle sense. Okay. Well, when I think of the good news, it's exactly telling them about Jesus dying and rising again defeating sin. Okay. Uh, we talked about a quote from Francis of Assisi that apparently was not actually from Francis of Assisi. Multiple people came up afterwards and you know, he didn't actually say that. And I looked it up and I'm like, yeah, okay, apparently he didn't actually say it. Still true. I still like it. It's not what he said. Although, um, uh, there are also people, uh, uh, somebody sent me a, a, a link to an article where somebody said, you cannot share the gospel without articulating it verbally. There is absolutely no way to, to, to evangelize without clearly articulating the gospel message. Well, that's worthy of discussion. Is it possible to evangelize without articulating the whole gospel message? Is it not possible? Yeah. So, can you not? Um, when a person is deaf, you can't, share, you can't share the gospel with them because they can't hear you say the... Well, you could sign it, you could write it, you could do... Uh-huh. Right, well, tell you about this. When you said articulate, if you give it out in printed form, is that you were articulating? Well, it's, it's, still, it's still writing it out verbally of things. Well, tell about this. Go ahead. Doesn't it talk about, like, a, in the Bible, about if, uh, if you're married to someone who's not safe, to live a life in such a way that, you know, shows the, the difference that it shows? Well, I'm back to the. The, the apocryphal Francis of Assisi quote, but the idea that, if you remember the quote he was talking about, you should always be sharing the gospel, 
And by the way, if you need to, use words. Which is not to say, which is not to say that he's going, oh, you can do it this way or this way, or you don't really need words. The point of that quote is to say, every part of your life should be living out the gospel, and you should be articulating it. But that needs to be within the context of every part of your life living that out. So you can make that argument. I, I don't think it needs to be an either or is what I'm getting at here. The idea of saying, well, you can you can live it out or you can articulate it, and it doesn't count if you don't articulate it. I'm like, you kind of have to be articulating it as you're living it out. Do me a favor. Somebody, let's do some sword drills. I want people to look up some of these things. Um, somebody look up to loop tune. Raise your hand because I'm going to just give you a list of these. Somebody raise your hand that you're going to do this. Okay, Randy's going to take Luke 2, 9 through 11. Somebody else take Isaiah 52, 7 through 8. Okay. Somebody else take Luke 4, 42 through 43. That's, that would be uh, uh, Nikki in the back. Somebody else take Acts 13, 32 through 30. There you go. Brian's got it. Somebody else take Acts 20, 24. That's Christy. Somebody else take 1 Corinthians 15, 1 through 5. That's, that's okay. We got this. Mark 16, 6, 15 through 16. Okay, we'll swing back to that one, apparently. All right. I'll, I'll look it up after. Okay, Randy, take Mark 16, 15 through 16. Uh, somebody else take Acts 5, 42. I'll do that one since Randy. Peter. All right, so let's, ah! <laughs> I don't like PowerPoint. All right, so what's the good news in Luke 2, 9 through 11? An angel of the Lord appeared to him, and the glory of the Lord shone around him, and they were terrified. But the angel said to him, Do not be afraid. I bring you good news of great joy that will be for all the people. Today in the town of David, a Savior has been born to you. He is Christ the Lord. So what's the good news being expressed here in Luke 2, 9 through 11? That uh, Christ the Messiah has been born. Okay. Isaiah 52, 7 through 8. How lovely on the mountains are the feet of him who brings good news, who announces peace, and brings good news of happiness, who announces salvation, and says to Zion, Your God reigns. Listen, your watchmen lift up their voices. They shout together, for they will see with their own eyes when the Lord restores Zion. So what's the good news in Isaiah 52? A couple parts. Uh -huh. News of happiness, peace, salvation, your God reigns, and then the Lord restoring Zion. What's the good news in Luke 4, 42 through 43? At daybreak, Jesus went out to a solitary place. The people were looking for him, and when they... Four, right? I think so. I think I got it wrong. Okay. At daybreak, Jesus went out to a solitary place. The people were looking for him, and when they came to where he was, they tried to keep him from leaving them. But he said, I must proclaim the good news of the kingdom what's the good news there um, the kingdom of God. yeah we don't get any much more detail with that but anybody want to articulate what what is the good news of the kingdom of God <coughs> I mean he talks a lot about the kingdom in, in the gospels what's the good news of the kingdom of God salvation for him Okay. Yes. <laughs> he said the kingdom is near. The kingdom is here. The kingdom is. Relationship. Okay. Why does he call it a kingdom? It's not just. It doesn't say the relationship is here. Peter, what was it that 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 was the good news in Isaiah? It was uh, 
your God reigns. Which is a nice way of saying kingdom, I think. I mean, isn't, that, isn't the saying the kingdom is this idea, this immediacy of God's reign? More than just God's presence, but God's reign. What about uh, Acts 13, 32 to 33? We tell you the good news. God promised our fathers he has fulfilled for us, their children, by raising up Jesus. As it is written in the second psalm, you are my son, today I have become your father. That's good news, sir? Well, it's similar in context to, to reigning, because in Psalm 2 it says, I have installed my king on Zion, mm -hmm. my holy hill. Mm -hmm. um, so, uh, it's, he's saying this is the fulfillment of the, the prophecy. Excellent. You actually did my work for me. Thank you very much. Uh, <laughs> I was like, yes, and what does it mean that he raised Jesus? You're perfect. Acts 20, 24. However, I consider my life worth nothing to me, but if only I may finish the race and complete the task the Lord Jesus has given me, the task of testifying to the gospel of God's grace. What's the good news there? God's grace. Yeah, which is what? Well, how would you articulate to somebody the good news of God's grace? Yeah, and specifically a gift that you didn't earn, you didn't merit it. This gracious gift. Um, 1 Corinthians 15, 1 through 5. Did you want to read the whole thing, or if you want to just tell me what you what you found there? Either way. Um, well, it's about preaching the gospel, um, that we are saved. Let's read it. Now, brothers, I want to remind you of the gospel I preached to you, which you received, and on which you have taken your stand. By this gospel you are saved, if you hold firmly to the word I preached to you. Otherwise, you have believed in vain. For what I have received, I passed on to you of first importance, that Christ died for our sins according to the scriptures, that he was buried, and that he was raised on the third day according to the scriptures, and that he appeared to Peter and then to the twelve. So the same thing as Brian, that it was fulfilled. Yes. Yeah. And, and, and I love how he's like, the good news. And by that I mean, <laughs> this is what he did, and then he did this, and then he did this. This is part of the, all part of this good news. What about Mark 16, 15 through 16? He said to them, Go into all the world and preach the good news to all creation. Whoever believes and is baptized will be saved, but whoever does not believe will be condemned. So what's the good news there? <coughs> it's the good news of salvation through Christ. Right. And the requirement of baptism, right? Boy, this one's tricksy. Because some people will look at that and say, the good news is, if you believe and are baptized, you'll be saved. Therefore, it's belief and baptism. Right? Because Paul said, believe in your heart and confess with your lips. And by that I mean at the act of baptism. Other people will note, he says, believe and be baptized and you'll be saved. But if you don't believe and aren't baptized, you won't be saved, correct? No, no baptism will be saved. Whoever does not believe will be so, some people look at this at, at Mark 16, 15 through 16 and say, clearly, baptism is required for salvation. Other people read Mark 16, 15 through 16 and say, clearly, baptism is important but not crucial for salvation. I.e., you tend to read there what you brought into there. I think you can make an argument there as to what he's getting at. I think there's a, there's a logic to it. 
there's always that danger of eisegesis. Most people will tend to walk into that and read what they already thought in that. Acts 5, 42. And every day in the temple and from house to house, they kept right on teaching and preaching Jesus as the Christ. Footnote says Messiah. Yeah. Yeah, in, in, in the original, this is, this is Messiah. So, are, are there any of these that you'd struggle with sharing with people? Or did you find yourself saying, I don't know how to articulate that? Help me out. Are you, are you struggling? Ah, I did it again. Are you struggling because you don't know how to articulate it? You don't understand it yourself? Or would you struggle because you don't know how to talk to people about complex religious -y things? Is the problem that you need to study this more, or is the problem that you need to stretch those getting out and sharing muscles? Or a little column A, a little column B. Yeah, Peter. Can I add one that might be a little bit of a surprise? <laughs> Knock yourself out. Apply to it? And this comes out of Revelation. Just listen to this verse. Revelation 14. I saw another angel flying in the mid-heaven, having an eternal gospel mm -hmm. to preach to those who live on the earth, and every nation, and tribe, and tongue, and people. So here we go. Content of that eternal gospel comes now. And with a loud voice, he said, Fear God, and give him glory, because the hour of his judgment has come. And worship him who made the heavens, and the earth, and the sea, and the springs of waters. Boom. I yep. mean, no explicit mention of Jesus no, but dying on the cross or anything, right, in those words. Well, but do, do all these specifically mention Jesus dying on the cross? No. No. What is the good news? You go, well, the good news is complex, or maybe even better than saying complex. The good news is multifaceted. There's all sorts of... The good news is that the kingdom is here. The good news is that he's preached uh, salvation. The good news is that the, 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 the blind see, the lame walk. The good news is that uh, he has died and risen again. The good news is that... Yeah. We're no longer slaves. Yeah, joint heirs with Christ. Oh, there's gazillion. Uh, uh, different, I'm just trying to give a smattering, and so that's a perfect one to end on also, is to say there's so many different aspects of this. And what was the very first thing that Andrew did in John 141? When, when he heard John the Baptist preaching about Jesus. What was the first thing that Andrew did in John 141? What did he say? I have seen heard Yes, but what... Is, Anybody want to run to, to John 1? I know, I just make John it read 141. This, the first thing Andrew did was to find his brother Simon and tell him we have found the Messiah. Yeah, we have found the Messiah. That's awesome news. Which begs the question, what's the word Messiah mean exactly? And we'll all go, oh, I know what it means. Okay, good. Awesome. Then forget the next 10, 15 minutes. Modern psychiatric parlance. A messiah complex is someone who has a grandiose delusions about their own importance, believing they have some sort of overinflated role to play in saving others. So what's a messiah, according to modern psychology? Okay. No, the colors are different. This is not, I don't know, whoever did this is not breaking copyright. No, so what, is a, what does messiah mean here? Somebody who has a plan saving others. Yep. Because the complex is thinking you're that, so... Now, it's always interesting when you're talking to somebody, do they think, hey, it's not like you're Jesus? Or do they think that Jesus technically had a Messiah complex? 
There's, a, there's an important subtle line there in, in, in psychology here. But, so Messiah means somebody who swoops in and saves everybody, right? Okay, this is psychology, but wouldn't you say that most people, when they're talking about messianic aspirations, or they talk about Messiah, that's what they're getting at? Especially people outside of the church, when they're talking about the word Messiah. Okay, the original word, Mashiach, means what? Ah, there you go, anointed one. That's what that means. And that means what exactly? It's coming from the Hebrew word mashach, meaning to smear stuff. No, it does. So the Messiah is somebody who smears stuff or somebody who got smeared? That's, that's what that means. When you anoint somebody with oil, you're smearing oil. Exactly. Okay, wait a minute. Does that mean the person who's pouring the oil or the one who's receiving the oil? Mashiach is the one getting smeared. So like David. That is David there. Yeah, that's David getting, getting smeared there. For anybody who's been anointed with an oil or a salve for some purpose, because realize, when they say oil, there's all sorts of levels of what that could be. That could be dribble like olive oil on your head, but there's also like smeary, goopy stuff that, that they could be putting on your head. Well, then, you know, you said to Jesus, uh, the nard. The nard yeah, nard is not, because, oh, that must have been like perfumey goop. <laughs> perfumey goop. Our English word ointment comes from the same root as our English word anoint, which should just make sense to you. Whoa. All of <laughs> I love this class. All of which comes from Latin through Old French and is talking about smearing medicinal goop on people. So there you go. That Messiah, right? That's what that's getting at. Pardon me? It's also covering over. That's a good point. Can we count that for Vaseline too? Yeah, sure, knock yourself out. So, kings got themselves anointed, because that's David getting anointed by Samuel here in the picture. Priests got anointed when they became a priest. Uh, sick people got anointed, because they need medicinal goop. People get anointed to clean themselves up, because there are a couple times in Scripture where we're told, um, clean yourself up, put oil on your head, uh, don't tell everybody you're fasting. Go, so it's like, you want to you want to gussy yourself up? You want to clean up? You're like, ah, oil yourself up. Slightly different world. Although, anybody who has a lot of hair product? Well, it, it, it's a desert climate, too. So, I mean, it's very, very dry. So oil is important to keep your skin clean. Excellent. Uh, I went to visit Wendy down in San Antonio one time, and it was raining out, and I needed to pick her up from work. And her mom said, be careful, it's raining. <laughs> Oh, okay. I'm from Illinois, man. I drive in rain all the time. She's totally right, because San Antonio is totally different than Peoria. Why? Because most of the year, they're constantly pouring oil on the roads. And so when it because I'm like, when it she's like, oh, when it rains, it's really slippery. And I'm like, ooh, when it rains, it's slippery. Oh, I'll try to remember that. Because their thing is, is it's always dry, and you need to keep the road supple. So it's constantly oiled. So when it rains, you're driving on an oil slick. And so oh I, I drove along. I'm like, ha, rain, oh my goodness. I'm like, oh. So yes, you're absolutely right. So what did getting anointed originally indicate? It's a lot like getting a blessing in a lot of different ways. In fact, I should stop there. Modern word, blessing, our English word blessing 
came from the old English word bledsium. Speaking of purifying or sanctifying something with blood, which is why blessing, our English word blessing, and our English word blood come from the same root, bledsium. Right? <laughs> anyway, but in the Old Testament, blessing is used to translate the word barak. <coughs> Baruchai, you hear different things like that. Which Jerome accurately translated as benedicere, or benedicere, depending on how you want to pronounce the Latin. Benediction, yes. Meaning to speak well of. Bene being good, dicere speaking. So good talking ish. Which is all that Barak means. To speak well of one another. Which has nothing to do with blood, right? I spoke well of Paul and Paul's like, blood. He's like, no. It's not where it comes from. Blessings is all about speaking well towards somebody. It's expressing a wish things would go well in somebody's life. That's literally etymologically what the word is getting at. Which is why in the New Testament, the two Greek words most used for blessing are eulogeo, which means to speak well of, right? Because remember you, we talked about being the prefix meaning good, like euphemism, euphoria, and logo, talking wordage. Yeah. To speak well of, which is where we get our English word eulogy, eulogy right? Which is literally a blessing in the New Testament sense. So eulogeo and makarios, meaning happy and joyful, right? Those are the two New Testament words used for blessing. I think Macarius is the one in, uh, that's used in the Son of the Mount, right? Mm -hmm. This is happy or blessed are those. Yep. Who, right? yep. Remember when we went through the, 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 uh, the blessings of, the, of that? The, um, yep. Yep. Did you just go, wait, happy or the sad? How's that go? Neither of which require the blood, right? I'm going to speak well. I'm, I'm apparently making him bleed by speaking well of him. I'm going to come to Terry and go, be happy. And she goes, blood. No. So why do we use the word blood? Because when the English translators translated into English, they wanted everybody to understand the religious applications of this. So they used a pagan word that everybody would understand. You know, the, you remember like the blood thing where you sanctify something by, by your actions. It's like that. You go, storda. By the time that English translators were translating into English, that had already become more of a cultic thing and less specifically about blood. But they picked a word that really didn't quite mean what... Anyway, no, 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 no. anyway, point is this. Just like getting a blessing, anointing someone was originally all about wishing health, prosperity into somebody's life. That's, that's what we're trying to do. So, by definition, anointed ones, Mashiach, are either people who need medicinal ointments, you're a sick person, and I need to help you. Or, you're someone who's really, really, really special. And I want to say, your life is going to be special. And this is, I'm anointing you as a prayer, essentially. By the time you got to Jesus, the word Mashiach had become a very culturally loaded term. Again, much like by the time blessing was used in the English translations, you go, well, it's kind of taken on a life of its own. By the time... You get to Jesus' life, when the people talk about a Messiah, yeah, they still talk about various Messiahs. But they, they were already starting to think of it as a capital M Messiah. There's a THE Messiah coming. There's a lot of little Messiahs. There's a lot of 
little anointed people. But then there's going to be a the Messiah coming. Like David or Moses or, or even more than those guys. Yeah. Okay. When, you know, like when you watch the movie Ten Commandments, they always refer to the coming with Moses, the deliverer. The deliver. mm -hmm. Did they at that time look at needing a Messiah? Or they sent one from God? Yeah. That, that God's anointing with his own power? Sure. Is that a capital M Messiah? Probably not. Although, yeah, it can. So back then, uh, they realized that, I guess, well, there wasn't as much prophecy yet. I mean, the, they thought of him as the Messiah more than, yeah, I mean, we always use the word deliverer, but. Well, I mean, some of the most, artic the earliest articulations that there's a capital M Messiah coming, or, or when you're like, you know, one even greater than Moses is coming, right. one in the spirit of that. So it's kind of post-Moses-y with, with some of that. But, but there's, there, I, I, what I want you to understand is just these little M Messiahs and a probable cap, capital M Messiah that they're expecting with all this. Anyway, to anoint someone with oil or ointment like this in Greek is krio. Etymologically, coming from an ancient word meaning to rub or smear stuff. Why? Because that's what, that's what the other word meant, right? It's the exact same thing. You're smearing stuff. Which is why the same root where we actually get the modern English words grit and grout come from the same basic etymological background. Because it's stuff you smear or rub. Anyway, the noun form of which is chrism. That's an anointing of that. And that's why the Greek word for Messiah or anointed one is Christ, Christos, right? Now, most of us probably know most of that. Some of us maybe don't know some of it. And some of us go, okay, well, did we just spend a lot of time on that? According to a recent survey, here in America, supposedly more than 21% of respondents, many of whom self-identified as Bible-believing, church-going Christians, answered they thought that Christ was Jesus' last name. And you go, oh, silly. But doesn't that make sense? He's Jesus Christ, Jesus Christ, Jesus Christ, Jesus Christ, 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 Jesus, Jesus, Jesus Christ. Got to really mess him up when Paul goes, Christ, Jesus. It's like an Oriental thing. They put his last name first. It's not, it is not... His last name, Santa Claus. Claus, Santa. You know, I, no, it's not. It's not his last name. So, how would you explain the importance of saying Jesus is the Christ, the capital M Messiah, especially as we go into Christmas, Christmas? And don't sit there and say, "Well, because we shouldn't take, you shouldn't let people say Happy Holidays." Nothing wrong with saying Happy Holidays, but what's the importance of saying? But I want you to understand why Christ is important. Yeah. His Christmas. A couple slides ago, when you asked, "Hey, what's, how, you know, what, what, what if this is difficult for you to explain?" I was thinking to myself, you know, the whole Psalm two, like, you know, this is this is the King of everything now installed, and he's gonna, you know, rule with a rod of iron, um, and be the legit like King over everything. Um, I was thinking, yeah, that's probably the, the, the toughest thing to explain. Um, but that's what this is getting at. It's Jesus the King. It's Jesus the Ruler. It's Jesus 
the one, you know, seated at the right hand of God the Father. It's Jesus, the um, the Lord. Well, and maybe, and maybe we should go back and say, because I said there are multiple people. Is he getting anointed because he's a priest? Is he getting anointed because he's a king? Is he being anointed because he's the the deliverer that's being promised in the spirit of Moses? Yeah, everything else, I don't want to get too far into it, but everything else is prefiguring this. He's the capital C, Christ, the capital M, Messiah. You go, well, as a priest, yes. As a, as a king, yes. As the anointed one, coming like a prophet, the spirit of, of Moses, yes. All of that, yeah. He's, he's, Everything Samuel ever dreamt of being, everything that David ever dreamt of being, everything that Moses ever dreamt of being, all in one guy. All of that. Born in Bethlehem and stuck in a feeding trough. Capital M, Messiah. Capital C, Christ. The king of the kingdom. By the way, the kingdom itself, the existence of that is good news. And this is the king of that kingdom. And this is how he was born. Yes. He's also cursed and afflicted, and so it's like somebody that you might come and pray over because they're cursed and because he's sick and broken. You go, no. Yeah. And that's the interesting. He goes like, he's anointed as a king, anointed as a priest, anointed as a prophet, anointed as somebody cursed and afflicted, anointed as somebody broken and sick, and you go, no. He was all of those things, but not that last one. Not broken and sick like we are. And, and yet he took on our sickness. Ultimately. And... Um, and our death. Um, interestingly, though, the women never got to anoint him for his burial, even though they were on their way to do that. Mm -hmm. And he is really anointed for us. That's right. He's anointed for us. And, and, um, um, much of going. Well, I, I was just going to say that well, when Jesus kept talking about you know his death and everything, and the disciples didn't want to accept, maybe they had a hard time accepting that aspect of his anointing. Mm -hmm. um, I was like, no. <laughs> oh, you. I'm fine with you being anointed as a king, yeah. but anointed for burial, no, kind of thing. Although, you know, I don't want to get too far into this, but yeah, no, no, because part of me is freestyling now about the whole gold frankincense myrrh thing, but that's a whole other point is, point is, both ends of his life, it's, it's emphasized, this idea of anointing with things. Anyway, since we're talking about Christ, we should talk about Eucharist. Why? Because there's absolutely no etymological connection between these words. I say that because people, Eucharist, is like receiving Christ. You go, yeah, except that's not what the word is talking about at all. There's a reason why that A is there, because it's a whole different word, right? Right? Well, you're going to tell us one second. Excuse me. Yeah, I think well, that's a good point. It comes from an ancient Greek word, Eucharistia, which means... A little complicated, actually, what that means. 
I can't just say it means because it's a little complicated what that means. At its basic etymological level, Eucharistia means good grace or good gracing. Because remember, the U means good, right? And charis means grace. Eucharis, you, you good, good gracingness, nasadi, which is odd in itself. Stemming off of that, the most common word in the New Testament for a gift from God, and there's, there's gifts that we give, like monetary gifts or physical gifts, but a gift that you get from God, the most common one is charisma, right? A grace that you get from God, which is why the Greeks thought that some people were unusually gifted. They have charisma. And you laugh, but don't you use the word charisma? Because those people are unusually gifted. They're, they're, they're charismatic. Or in religious circles, if you have people who emphasize receiving spiritual gifts from God and including those into a service, we call them charismatics, right? Because you're talking about this heavenly gift. You're talking about this spiritual gift, this grace that you receive, charismatics. Anyway, but at point of common usage, the word became giving thanks for having gotten good grace from God. So, I mean, the word itself is talking about good gracing, but how it's used, it's being thankful for that. So think of the English word gratitude, which gratitude comes from the same root as grace. So you get this idea, they both come from this proto-Indo-European word, guera, meaning favor. So to, be, to have gratitude is to be thankful for having received grace. Yeah, and how you say thank you in Spanish is gracias. How you say thank you in Latin is gracias, which is grace. Mm -hmm. Well, this is the, I mean, Eucharistia is, is the, the, one of the major words for thanksgiving. It's not the only, well, we'll talk about that. Let's talk about that. It's about, nickel for you, you're the horns for today, aren't you? The Eucharistia is the most common New Testament word for the idea of thanksgiving. As in passages like 1 Corinthians, somebody, I know, I'm making you do it again. Somebody read me 1 Corinthians 14, 12 through 18. 1 Corinthians 14, 12 through 18. Let's look for this word in that. So it is with you, since you are eager to have spiritual gifts, try to excel in the gifts that build up the church. For this reason, anyone who speaks in a tongue should pray that he may interpret what he says. For if I pray in a tongue, my spirit prays, but my mind is unfruitful. So what shall I do? I will pray with my spirit. But I will also pray with my mind. I will sing with my spirit, but I will also sing with my mind. If you are praising God with your spirit, how can one who finds himself among those who do not understand say amen to your thanksgiving, since he does not know what you are saying? You may be giving thanks well enough, but the other man is not edified. I thank God that I speak in tongues more than one of you. Actually says thanksgiving multiple times there, doesn't it? This is... They can't, they can't agree with your Eucharistia if they don't understand it. I'm, I'm, I'm giving thanks all over the place that I speak more than all of you. Great, it's all over the place. And all the, all the charismatics go, right, there's charismatics right there. Ironically, it's not in 1 Corinthians 10, 16. Somebody read 1 Corinthians 10, 16. This is not the word that's used here. 
It's not the cup of thanksgiving for which we give thanks on a participation in the blood of Christ, and it's not the bread that we break for participation in the body of Christ. That's not the word that's used for thanksgiving there. Anybody want to hazard guess what word's used there? It's a fine one. Hulagias. <gasps> it is! That's what it's going back to you. You look at it, the idea of a couple of people. It's not the four, it's Hulagias. But not in any way that has anything to do with blood, right? <laughs> so many English theologies have been built off the back. It's the cup of bloodness. Yeah, not in this verse. Yeah, it says blessing. Bloodney. Blood to blood, blood seeing. No. No, it isn't. But it would work so nicely. I know. But no. Anyway, which is why Paul used it to describe Christ's actions at the Last Supper in 1 Corinthians 11, 23-24, where he says... After he gave thanks, he broke it and said. All right? We actually have several words for that holy meal that we eat today that, that echoes that last supper that Jesus did. The Eucharist, which tends to be used by Catholic, Orthodox, and High Protestant. What do I mean by High Protestants? Very liturgical. Very liturgical, yeah. Uh, it's etymologically, etymologically focused on our gratitude toward Christ for his sacrificial gift on the cross, right? That's what Eucharist is talking about. Giving thanks. Let's do the giving thanks together, right? When you say we're going to take the Eucharist, you go, we're, we're doing the giving thanks. That's etymologically what you mean. In point of practice, it became focused on personally receiving that gift through the sacraments, through liturgical observance. That's how you receive God's grace. That is how you receive the grace of what he did on the cross. If you, if you don't keep taking the Eucharist, you don't keep having the good grace, which is why the scariest thing in Catholic, Orthodox, and even some high Protestant circles is to be excommunicated, i.e. you can't keep taking communion. And if you can't keep taking communion, you can't receive God's grace. If you can't receive God's grace, you're going to not go to heaven. Which has nothing to do with the word Eucharist and everything to do with the practice of it, right? And there's a lot of Protestants that came along and went, well, that's not right. There's nothing in Scripture that says if you don't take communion, you burn in hell. It doesn't work like that. Didn't we just get finished saying, no, all that's required is faith and baptism. Which Somebody else goes, I don't think the baptism... And everybody fights everybody. But the Protestants are like, uh, can we just take a different, load, less loaded term for this? Because when I say Eucharist, everybody goes, I know what that means. It's the cup of bleeding. And you go, oh my goodness. You just think you know what it means. All right, we're going to use a different term. So the most common in most Protestant circles became communion, right? Isn't that what most of us have heard in most? Yeah, communion. Same thing. We're talking about the same thing, but not the same connotation. And it comes from the Latin translation of what we just read in 1 Corinthians 10, 16. <coughs> right? Isn't the cup of blessing that we, we were drinking a communication with the blood of Christ, right? Even Catholic theology, somebody who takes the Eucharist is a communicant because they are, they are doing communion. They are communing with God being unified together, all of us partaking. It's a sharing, it's a partaking, yes. So in that context, 
the communion is more forcefully expressed as communion with the blood of Christ, not communion with one another. But it. Okay, what I'm is. Just, I'm just asking. No, no. I, I don't, I'm, I'm a little confused by that. Good. Uh, <laughs> it is an interesting term that he's using here, and I'm going to. Tell you what, let me cheat a little bit and play with the Latin for just a second, which only counts a little bit because it wasn't written in Latin originally. But communion is talking about being unified together with. And, 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 and how this is broken down is to say all of us are together and we're together with the cup of Christ. So it's all of us being together with God is the, is, is the force of this in Latin. But that's, the New Testament wasn't written in Latin, so I don't want to go too far into that. Okay. The original word used here in Greek, not communication, not communion, because those are Latin terms, but the word in Greek. If you're talking about a participation, you're talking about a sharing together in this. Randy, you and Cliff should know this one. What small group are you guys part of? Which actually means, how would you define, you guys, anybody? Yeah, it's fellowship, sharing together. We're coming together in community with the blood of Christ. We as a community are coming. I can't even say community. Community is itself coming from this Latin term. We're all together together. Anyway, so it's coming, which is itself an interesting word because it comes from the word koinos, which means common. It's what everybody shares in common with things. And in fact, there's a connotation in that of Vulgar, much like the English word common in like Shakespearean times. It's like common. It means we all have this in common. You go, yeah, it's, it's also common. It's what all the commoners have. All the vulgar people. Vulgar meaning common. common. It means the people, right? Talking about the, the Latin vulgate, vulgate written for the people, right? <coughs> or even the connotation of sexual union. Because this is. Ultimately, the same root that we get the word coitus for in English. This idea of this radical, intimate connection with one another. How, help me out here, might that arguably very unusual vocabulary choice enhance Paul's argument in the overarching context of verses 13 through 20? Somebody read me. I know, that's a lot of verses. Somebody read me. 1 Corinthians 10, 13 through 20. There's a context for how he's describing this. And it's important. And think about the connotations of the word he's using, where he specifically says, "We're a part." It's a is this a participation in the blood of Christ together? We're all coming together to participate. Surely somebody's got thirteen through twenty now. First come, first serve. No temptation has seized you except what is common to man. And God is faithful; He will not let you be tempted beyond what you can bear. But when you are tempted, He will also provide a way out so you can stand up under it. Therefore, my dear friends. Flee from idolatry. I speak to sensible people. Judge for yourselves what I say. Is not the cup of thanksgiving for which we give thanks the participation in the blood of Christ? It is not the bread that we break a participation in the body of Christ. Because there is one loaf, we who are many are one body, for we all partake of the one loaf. Consider the people of Israel. Do not those who eat the sacrifices participate in the altar? Do I mean then that a sacrifice offered to an idol is anything, or that an idol is anything. No, but the sacrifices of pagans are offered to demons, not to God, and I do not want you to be participants with 
demons. So if you think about what the word participation here is saying, it's koinonia, it's fellowship with this kind of stuff, and think about the connotations that people, especially in Corinth, where the word to Corinthianize was synonymous with sexual immorality in the ancient world. If you want to talk about being debauched, you talk about Corinthianizing. So, so these guys reading this, hearing this, what is Paul saying by keep saying participation, 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 participation? What's he talking about? And all of us are coming together. What were you going to say? I was just going to say, kind of the participation in the sense of the binding together to make yourself one with that. Mm-hmm. There's an intimate connection here. A, 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 and a, and a, it's hard to say without using the word. A community connection. We as a community are all coming together to connect and to connect ourselves very intimately with God. If, isn't that what the people of Israel did? When they did it sacrifice, weren't they intimately connected with that? I don't want you to be that intimately connected with demons. And, and we, we sometimes think, oh, but it's nothing. It's a block of wood. Paul said, it's a block of stone. It's a block of wood. It's nothing. Except it isn't. It is nothing. There's nothing there. It's, it's a bust of Zeus. There is no Zeus. This is just something that somebody sculpted. And yet, if there's any spiritual power behind that at all, it's, it's a demonic spiritual power. And if you engage in sacrifice of that, if you go to somebody's house and they give you something to eat, eat it, right? Isn't this the argument he had? If you go to somebody's house, they give you a steak, eat the steak. It's no big deal. If you know it was sacrificed to an idol, there's nothing there. It's a block of stone. If the person says, this was sacrificed to an idol, will you eat it with me? You have to go, no, I can't. Because for me to do this with you, has suddenly become a spiritual act. And we are koinoniaing with demons. I can't do that. Can, could, could, he, could he have used a word more strong here to say, this is radical connection where all of us are coming together and being with the Lord. Do you, do you want that radical connection with demons? You don't want that. And it's awfully tempting for us today to go, yes, First century problems, we don't have that today. Because there aren't demons and there aren't idols today, right? Well, there are demons and our idols just look different. We sculpt them in different shapes and we make them out of different media, which is a more loaded sentence when you think about it. Um, but if Paul felt this strongly where he's just like, don't spiritually wrap yourself around and involve yourself with Things that aren't God, that aren't from God, isn't that still just as true today? <coughs> you can take that super far, and I, I don't want to—I don't want to go too far down that road. But it's just this idea of saying we should probably take this really seriously as to what are we saying? Oh, it's nothing, and koinoniaing. You were going to say something, right? Oh, I was just going to say that the next verses are: you cannot drink the cup of the Lord and the cup of demons too cannot have a part in both the Lord's table and the table of demons. Are we trying to arouse the Lord's jealousy? 
Are we stronger than he? Yeah, he starts getting really intense there. And rightly so. And rightly so. Okay, anyway. Because we're actually talking about the word communion, so I gotta probably go back to that. Communion has the etymological focus of us personally, intimately sharing in the blood and body of Jesus Christ with a personal connection to his sacrifice, right? This radical connection point. Ironically enough, actually sounds a little bit more sacramental than Eucharist does. Eucharist is Thanksgiving. Communion says radical personal connection with the blood and body to which everybody who takes the Eucharist should go, wait, can we switch terms? That, that term actually sounds more like what we're saying and our term sounds more like what you're, no, it's a Thanksgiving. No, it's a radical connection. Wait, you're using our word. We're using your, switch. So other churches say, okay, uh, how about we go back to the word that, the, that Paul actually uses for what Jesus is doing. Paul actually calls this something specific. In 1 Corinthians 11, 20-21, what does Paul call this? If you're looking for a noun for what we're doing, and you don't want to use Eucharist, and you don't want to use communion, what do you use? When you come together, it is not the Lord's Supper you eat, for to eat, each of you knows the help without waiting for anybody else. Don't you have hopes to eat and drink in, or do you despise the church of God and delay those who have done what shall I say to you? Shall I praise you for this? Certainly not. That's all right. I like where you are. So, they call it the Lord's Supper, which is what I tend to call it. We call it here. Ten, if, if you call it the Eucharist, I'll go, you're right, we should give thanks. If you call it communion, I'm like, you're right, we should all come together and have a personal relationship with one another and with God. In the bulletin, we will tend to refer to it, and I will tend to refer to it as the Lord's Supper, on account of that's what Paul calls it, and I like that. And it's a nice reminder of some different things, right? What's the linguistic force that Paul is trying to get to by calling it the Lord's Supper? You could say, well, it's just, I mean, this is Supper that Jesus instituted. That's why he calls it that. Paul rarely just, you know, I just thought he'd slap a word there. What's the point that he's getting at by calling it the Lord's Supper? Would you say? This is, this is for the Lord. Yes. Now it is, yes, but it's, but the force of calling it the Lord's Supper is, it's his, not yours. His, not ours. If you look at the larger context that Randy gave us of all this, if you go back a little bit, and if you go forward a little bit, it's all in this context of relationship within the body, right? And how you're doing this badly. There are divisions that you guys justify thinking it's okay to do. Because surely I'm better than him. I get to do this. This person's kind of messed up, and I'm special. I'm an elder. I get to go first. And if there's not enough to get around to Nikki, that's okay, because I'm an elder. Because that's the way Randy looks at that, right? No, which is why Randy's an elder, because he would never look at it like that. That's the whole point. But he says, you know, you guys seem to think that these divisions are not only we've got them, but we like them. We justify them theologically. So what you're eating isn't the Lord's Supper, because you're eating it for yourselves. You're doing this for you, not for God. And if you are sitting down to have the Lord's Supper so that you get something out of it, you're doing it wrong. Right? If you're sitting there going, my thing, he's like, you, you've missed the point here. You're supposed to be remembering Christ's selflessness with each part of this. This is my body broken for you. Do this in remembrance of me. This is my blood. Do this in remembrance of me. Isn't every part of this supposed to be something where you're reminded that Christ said, I'm giving everything of myself to minister to you. 
And so you should be grateful. You should be thanking, giving thanks in this. But instead you're going, more for me. I don't care about you. You were late anyway. If you'd been on time, you might have gotten something. Stop and think about the body of the Lord. His actual physical body broken for you. But since I've already used the term body in this section to talk about not that, and I'm going to use the term body in this section to talk about not that, Paul, being Paul, is being clever. You have to stop and think about his actual physical body broken for you, and you have to think about his actual spiritual body, the rest of the people in the church. Right? Are you eating and drinking without thinking of his body? You mean on the cross? Yes, but I also mean the body I was just talking about, and let me clarify I'm talking about also, what about the rest of his people? What about your brothers and sisters in Christ? Or else you're going to eat and drink judgment on yourself. That's why so many of you are getting sick. That's why so many of you are dying. Because you don't care about the other people in the church. And so you, you are not really examining yourself before you sit down to eat. Whether I'm holy enough to accept his body broken on the cross for me, no, because you're not. You never will be. When I say examine yourself, I'm talking about how are you treating the other people? How are you connected to the other people? That's what I'm talking about in terms of examination. You want to eat a meal for yourself? Go home. Do it there. Isn't that the essential argument? Eating the Lord's Supper thus focuses on the act of remembering the Lord and his body in all of those permutations when we sit down to eat which I kind of like. I have no problem calling it communion. I have no problem calling it a Eucharist. Except I know the moment I call it Eucharist, people, there are always going to be people who go, oh, I know what you mean by that. I'm like, I don't think you do. But then again, I can make that argument about communion. When I was a kid, I grew up in a church that used the word communion. Not a high church. And it's a really good church. It's a strong Bible-believing church. And the very first time I took communion, I was terrified. Absolutely terrified. Because I remember this, you better examine yourself so you don't eat and drink judgment on yourself. And I needed to make sure that I was holy enough to be taking communion. This is my first communion. I was terrified. And I ended up, the first communion I took was at my, uh, my grandmother's Lutheran church. So we went up and we knelt up at the front and the, the pastor came and put a communion wafer on my tongue. And I was terrified. Yeah. So I'm sitting there. Otherwise, I'd have to tell my grandma. No, I can't give to your grandson. I don't know. So, it, but, but I'm kneeling and I'm sitting there going, Jesus, Jesus, Jesus. I literally, I, that's what I Because I was like, I don't want to fill my heart or my mind with anything but Jesus at this moment. I'm sitting there going, Jesus, 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 Jesus. And somebody sneezed or coughed behind me. I don't know what it was. So I, and I stopped and I turned and looked down. And for a split second, I'm like, I have Jesus in my mouth and, I'm, and I've forgotten him for a moment. And I, and I turned around, Jesus, 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 Jesus. I was absolutely terrified. And I told my brother afterwards, and he's like, you're an idiot. You know, he's six years older than me. And, you know, Craig was, you know. But he's like, you're an idiot. But he, he gave me a big hug, and he's like, you poor kid. You know, but, 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 but that's because I grew up in a Bible-preaching church that called it communion, and I had totally the wrong perspective on what, it, what examining myself meant. So what did they I, call it? I think they called it communion. Yeah. But, 
So my point is not to pick on Lutherans, not to pick on Baptists, not to pick on uh, Catholics, not to pick on anybody, but rather to say we all tend to come at this with connotative assumptions about this. Ironically, that may have nothing to do with the words themselves and everything to do with the culture that has embraced that particular word. It is still an ordinance. Even though we call it the Lord's Supper and we say it's, it's a meal, it's still an ordinance. And by ordinance, I mean, what's an ordinance? What is it? To ordain something? Is there an English word that ordinance sounds a little bit like? Ordered, yeah. An ordinance is something we do in an ordered manner because we were told to. And Jesus specifically said, do this, go do this sort of thing, right? We are told to do it and we are told how to do it. So it's an ordinance. It's also still a sacrament. And what's a sacrament? Sacrifice. Um, the word sacrifice actually has a connection to this, but what's sacrament? It's, yeah, something that's holy, something that's set apart, something that is sacred, something that comes back with that kind of thing. And in Catholic, Orthodox, or high church traditions, something that you do in order to receive grace. But that's not necessarily what the word sacrament means. The word sacrament means a holy thing. Something that's set apart. So is baptism, is communion, are they ordinances? Stuff we do certain ways because we're told to do them. Yes. Are they sacraments, i.e. holy actions, things set apart? Yes, baptism's different than my bath. It's different. Communion's different than my lunch. It's different. Now, by ordinance, does that mean there's nothing else going on here? Simply a remembrance. So sacrament, does it mean no? This is how you receive God's grace. All that's connotations that we staple to these words based on theologies we probably walked toward the text holding already with things. doesn't mean that you can't look to scripture and find truth there. I'm just saying we need to be aware that much of the time when we're looking for truth, we have a sense of what that truth is already, and we go into the scripture looking for that, looking for proof texting. We've talked in other venues as to why we think what we think here and where we get it. My point is trying to get back to what do these words actually mean and what are they getting at here? Of course, if we're talking about holy and sacred, we probably ought to talk about holy and sacred. So we'll pick up on that next time. But with all these things, I'm a huge fan of trying to figure out context. I'm a huge fan of trying to figure out etymology. Not just because I'm a geek, though, let's be honest, I'm a geek. Um, represent. Um, but because this means stuff. The words that we use mean stuff. Um, as I've said before, there's a reason, good reason why I try to make it a point when Wendy says I love you, not to say I love you too. Sometimes I do, but in general I don't. Because I never, ever, ever want that word to be reflexive. I don't ever want to just, out of reflex, say I love you too. I want her to know that anytime I say I love you, it's because at that moment I am consciously saying I love you. I, am care, I care about you. I am thoughtfully committed to meeting your needs. I love you. That word always means something when I say it. That's why we never use the word no with our kids unless that ends the conversation. We would say, I don't think that's a good idea, buddy. But the moment I say, nope, my kids knew, and I guess we're done, that's gin. No never ends with me getting what I was wanting. It just ends with me starting to get in trouble for keep asking. Words mean stuff. But I encourage you to stop and think about some of these words and what they mean to you. 
and what they meant in scripture. And as we look at some of these things, you realize the nuances around some of these things. You just go, oh, 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 so that's what Isaiah thought when he saw a seraph in the, in the throne room. Now that I understand what that word is. Oh, that's why he's the capital C Christ in all of those connotations of anointing. Oh, this is what we're doing here. We're giving thanks, communing together as a community in an intimate relationship and saying, this isn't, but this, even as we're coming together, this isn't my meal, this is God's meal. These words mean stuff. Would you pray with me? Dear Lord, thank you. I thank you that you are so much smarter and better at this than we are. And that when you say stuff, you mean exactly what you say. And I thank you. I thank you that you use simple and brilliant people like John and complex and brilliant people like Paul. Thank you for using poetical wordsmiths like David. Thank you. Thank you for all the different ways that you reach out to us. Thank you for the precision of Luke. Thank you for all the different ways that you express yourself in Scripture and you mean what you say, and on so many levels. Help us, Lord, never to gloss over your word or your words. Help us to know how to articulate them to those around us in ways that show how awesome you are. In Jesus' name and for your glory, amen.